If you've been here long enough, you know that one of the ways we describe ourselves is as a teaching hospital. When you're at a teaching hospital, doctors are training up the next generation of doctors to care for people. Well, we see ourselves as a training church, a place where we are training up the next generation to pastor. And one of the ways we do this is by opening up the pulpit. And this is one of those mornings. Chris Engelman will be bringing God's word this morning. Uh, He comes to us by way of Minnesota through Wisconsin. Um, He is a TED student currently. He is one of our pastoral apprentices. He oversees our graduate student ministries and will have a very important part in our men's retreat that will be coming up in February. Chris is a man without guile. He is a man who I can say um, uh, I have witnessed in him a very sincere and earnest faith. Chris wants to see people come to Jesus, and he wants to see people become more like Jesus. And so I'm excited to have him come bring the word. So Chris, please come up and bring us, bring us the word. If you would like to follow along in the Bible, please raise your hands, and an usher will get, get a Bible to you. Otherwise, you can follow along in a version app. I'm going to go home and look up what guile means. (laughs) Let me just begin by praying. Lord God, may you bless this time. May you do for us what we can't do for ourselves. May you help us to see clearly the truths, the goodness of this passage, your word, and renew our joy in you. All this in your name. Amen. I'm guessing that some of you might already know who George Mueller is. But I'm guessing that most of you don't, and so I want to tell you about George Mueller. George Mueller lived in England for almost all the 1800s. He was born in 1805, died in 1898, and he lived most of his life in Bristol, England. George Mueller was a freak in terms of all the stuff that he did in his life, the stuff that God did through him. For starters, he pastored the same church for 60 years, and during most of that time he was preaching three times a week. He was still preaching at the age of 92 when he passed away. So that in and of itself is pretty impressive. He was in England during the First Great Awakening, a time when people estimate that hundreds of thousands of people came to faith, and he was active in evangelism. He started something called the Scriptural Knowledge Institute for Home and Abroad, and through this started, I think it was 117 schools. What he's most known for is he started five orphan houses. You can see a a picture of them up here. This is a, a rendering of them As they stood in about 1880, so some 30 years or so after they got this property, he and his wife um, started orphan ministry by taking 30 30 young girls into their own home. So obviously she had as much faith as he did. What's even more incredible is the way that this was done. He didn't ask people for money. Instead, he did the equivalent of putting a classified ad in the newspaper and started praying. He did this because he wanted to demonstrate to his congregation the power of prayer. And the power of prayer was demonstrated. He has a book called Answers to Prayer. Lots of good stories. I recommend it to you. His last 68 years of ministry, he didn't take a salary himself. And on top of all of this, he had a pretty fantastic beard. I thought that was worth pointing out. I tell you all this. I tell you about George Mueller because I want to read a quote to you from him. And I want you to know who it's coming from. According to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention. 
but I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. This has been my firm and settled condition for the past five and thirty years. So with all the responsibilities that George Mueller had, orphans to look after, schools to administrate, evangelism to do, not to mention sermons to preach, for him to say that the most important thing to do day by day is to make your souls happy in God, I think that carries some weight. At this point you might be asking, what exactly does he mean by that? How do we do that? This is what we're talking about today as we look at Philippians 4, 4 through 9. I invite you to turn there now. Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote while he was in prison to the Philippian church. And chapter 4 is the last chapter in that letter. As he starts to conclude, he, he gives what you might describe as everyday instructions for joy. If you were starting a job tomorrow and you wanted my advice, I would tell you something like, work hard, pay attention to what your boss wants, be honest, work well with your coworkers. If you did those things, there's a pretty good chance that job would go well for you. If we do the things that Paul instructs us to do in this passage, there's a pretty good chance we will experience joy in Christ. Let me read it. This is Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, there is anything worthy of praise, think about such things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Today as we look at these everyday instructions for joy, we see the first one right away in verse 4. We're commanded to rejoice. Commanded to rejoice. That might feel funny at first, right? If I'm saying that these are everyday instructions for joy, and I'm telling you the first thing that Paul tells us is to rejoice, that might seem a little unhelpful right away. But it's good for us to remember that rejoicing is a verb, it's not a feeling. Paul's not telling you you have to be happy. He's telling you to do something and to rejoice, to do this thing that influences our feelings. He's not telling us to fake it. He's telling us to do what is appropriate. And we can do this honestly even when we don't feel like it. When I was in college, I lived in a house of 15 guys, and it was fantastic. There was a house of six women down the street that we were friends with. They came over, probably about this time of year since they were singing Christmas carols. They sang Christmas carols. Um, to our house. It was great. Well, I, I said, it probably was. I wasn't there. The next night, I was sitting in my, my room, working away on some homework, and I hear a knock on the door, and in come these six women, and they sing a Christmas carol to me at my desk. So I was touched. No one's ever done that before me before. At the same time, I didn't know exactly how to respond to that. I knew it would have been wrong if I was sitting there, and I was just sort of clacking away on my keyboard. I looked over and just said, oh, thank you, and then went back and That would have been a failure to respond. There's such a thing as a right response and a failure to respond, and even more so in our relationship with God. God has redeemed us. His promises are always certain to be fulfilled, and he's always at work in our midst. 
It's always right for us to rejoice in him. Even if in the same breath you're honestly voicing your complaints. When you feel like rejoicing, oftentimes you don't need to hear this command. There's times when you don't feel like rejoicing that oftentimes it's the best time to make an effort to rejoice. When we're going through hardships or suffering or just general spiritual lulls, oftentimes the most damaging thing that can happen isn't the thing that's causing that suffering. It's the interpretation that we carry forward from it. Instead of asking God what he's trying to teach us in that moment, we just believe whatever's easiest, say this is horrible, and leave it at that. Things are not going well at work. We're tempted to believe lies about the company or coworkers or just blame things on the system in general. If you're experiencing a strained or even broken relationship, it's tempting to believe lies about the other person or even lies about yourself. In times of suffering, we even start to believe lies about God. But striving to rejoice in God in these times, this tends to protect us from these false interpretations, these interpretations that can get in the way and stay in the way for a long time. Striving to rejoice in God, even when we don't feel like it, is almost like spiritual strength training. I'm sure all of us have had times when we know that it's appropriate to rejoice in God and we strive to do so. For some reason, it's just not not doing what we want it to. You tell yourself some of the, the most foundational truths of the gospel, if anything, should encourage us. It should be these. That Christ died for us, that our sins are paid for, that God accepts us and delights in us even though we don't deserve it, and that he's with us, strengthening us day by day, and that one day we'll be raised from the dead and spend eternity with him. Sometimes even telling us these things, for some reason something inside us just doesn't turn the way it's supposed to. That's you this morning. I, I want to say two things. The first is try to find people who are experiencing this sense of joy and excitement and hope in what God's doing. Their hope is contagious, and you need a hope transfusion. So just try to be around them. Don't stalk them, but try to be around them. Hopefully there are people like that in your ethos. Second thing I'll say is don't give up in this effort to rejoice. There will come a point where the clouds will part and the the light of God's goodness will shine through again. So know that that day is coming. Keep rejoicing. At the end of the day, our feelings are not completely beyond our control. They're not completely within our control, but they're not completely beyond it either. We have a choice of whether to cultivate feelings that are a proper and appropriate response to God, a response that is pleasing to Him and, at the end of the day, very enjoyable for us, or we can let weeds grow up in our emotional garden, if you will. People say that to appreciate poetry, you have to learn to read poetry. You have to cultivate an ability to read it, to recognize um, sort of the, the virtues of individual poems. It's kind of like that with rejoicing in God. We have to learn to rejoice in God. We have to learn to recognize his goodness. There isn't just one way to do that. Maybe, you know, um, for you it's reading a psalm and just using that as a platform for prayer. Maybe it's bringing a little bit of thanksgiving into every day and just journaling about the way God blesses you week by week, day by day, even in the big picture of what he's going to do. As you grow in your ability to rejoice, you will much more naturally have an ability to help others rejoice in God too. This is the first command that Paul gives us, the first instruction for joy. The second one, is, he tells us, is to know that the Lord is at hand. He says this in verses 5 and 6. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. The verse continues, but I, I stop it there because I want to show the contrast. We're not to be anxious. We're to be reasonable. 
Now, the ESV uses the word reasonableness. The NIV uses the word gentleness. Other translations say fairness or um, humility. Whatever your translation says, think of this as the opposite of a frantic, anxiety-driven bull in a china shop who's willing to step on anyone's toes to get their way. That is not to be us. Instead, because we know the Lord is at hand, we can work with people and that ultimately God is working for us and we don't have to lose our composure when things don't go according to plan. It must look kind of backwards to people when they hear us say that we follow a God who's all-powerful, who's loving, merciful, and gracious, who forgives all our sins, and yet we're freaking out because of a midterm, review, midterm exam or a performance review at work. Your anxiety will get in the way of your Christian witness, not just to other people, but to ourselves even as well. The parable of the seeds talks about how the worries of this world can choke off our belief. As this passage says, this frantic behavior is inappropriate because the Lord actually is at hand. As I was studying, I'm asking myself, does this mean the Lord is at hand in the sense that Jesus is coming back soon? Or does it mean the Lord is at hand in the sense that he's with us right now? I looked at a commentary by Gordon Fee, and he basically said both. Not only are both true, but Paul maybe even intended both here. On the one hand, Jesus is coming back soon. And that does a lot to reframe what we're concerned about. Knowing that there's a day when there will be no more crying or mourning or pain, when Jesus will come and set all things straight, when we remember that, suddenly things like what your job title is in two years doesn't have the same hold on you that it otherwise would. But it's not just that someday Jesus is coming back. He's near to us now. He's with you on your journey. And remembering that tends to give us a certain amount of courage and wisdom energy just to, to move forward. I have to think that probably about all of our anxiety comes from one of two things. One, we're striving after things that are not God's will and purpose for us, and on some level we know that. Or two, we are striving after things that, that are God's will and purpose for us, but we're not doing so out of his strength. We're trying to muscle things on our own, and we forget that God needs to be the one to do the heavy lifting to accomplish his purposes. It becomes like trying to Paddle a sailboat against the waves when what you should do is pay attention to the wind and put up the sails. Psalm 127 says that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. If we remember that, that frees us up to work towards God's purposes in a way that's a lot more fruitful and a lot more enjoyable for us at the end of the day. If we forget this, if we think that everything depends on us, then sooner or later your anxiety will get the best of you. It'll get the best of you because if you think that everything depends on you, then when you do inevitably experience a setback or a failure, you'll have a hard time not interpreting that as a reflection of who you are. None of us likes to feel like a failure. None of us likes to even be tempted to think that. And so in the long run, you'll start to shy away from more significant work and ministry, relationships. You'll start to fantasize about living in a cabin in the woods where you don't have to deal with responsibilities or pressure or, you know, interpersonal conflict. Or if you're Pastor Jason, taking care of camels, those of you who were here last week. In the long run, your anxiety will get in the way of you trying to do bigger and better things because bigger and better things will just carry a fear of bigger and badder failure. At this point, you might be asking, on some level, doesn't our anxiety 
propel us to action, cause us to do things well and to care about things. And it's, it's a valid point. If we do care about things, we will become anxious. It's just kind of the way things are. So the, the, the solution here, when we start to become anxious, is not to step out of the situation, to back out of relationships or um, work or ministry. If we did that every time we started to become anxious, if you quit your job every time it was hard, pretty soon you'd just keep lowering the bar, and at the end of the day, you'd still be stressed and anxious. It's just that your faith will have atrophied, and the stuff you're anxious about wouldn't really be that significant. Instead, because we can go to God with our anxiety, we have a way to both strive after things that we really care about, things that really matter, and still shed our anxiety. You should be going after things that send you to your knees in prayer. You just shouldn't forget to actually go to your knees in prayer. It's kind of a crucial step. This brings us to the the third instruction Paul gives us. And it's a piece of instruction that has an explanation behind it. You need to battle anxiety by presenting your request to God with thanks. In doing so, you will receive Christ's protection. In verses 6 and 7, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So to put it another way, don't worry, be thankful. We're to be thankful instead of being anxious, not only because it's the right and appropriate response to God and because it, it tends to like authenticate our witness to other people, but we're to be thankful instead of being anxious because being thankful is the best way to avoid being anxious. Why is that? Why does us being thankful protect us from worrying too much? I'll give you two reasons. The first one is easier to explain. The second one I can't totally wrap my head around. The first reason that being thankful helps calm our anxiety is when we're thankful, we see God's activity in our life. And seeing God's activity day by day, week by week, it it drives home the idea that we're not alone, that God's actually with us and that's a pretty comforting thought because we thought everything was up to us. If we even subconsciously started to think that we were alone. It's kind of a discouraging thought at the end of the day because we know how weak we are. But if instead we recognize God's activity, if we give thanks, that opens our eyes. A couple weeks ago, I, I had a leak in one of my tires on my car. Um, it was leaking so fast that I had to, to manually pump it up twice a day. It's a great tricep workout, but cold outside and obviously didn't want to be doing that all winter. Then I talked to my dad, and he's like, the tire might blow. You need to get this fixed right away. And so the next morning, um, something I prayed about. I said, God, help me to find a good deal on this. Hopped on Yelp, went to a mechanic. He told me to go to a gas station on Western and Tui, and it worked out great. My tire was fixed. Um, they were able to fix it and seal it for only $25. And not only that, but the tread was getting lower on my front two tires, and they took those off. And little did I know, the cords were actually already showing through the rubber on the tire. So this tire could have gone any day. So not only did God answer the prayer that I prayed, but he answered the prayer that I didn't even know I was supposed to pray. It can be easy when we just recognize God's provision, things like that, to just move on and go to the next thing, to tackle the next problem. We tend to be more focused on the things that are wrong rather than the things that God is doing for us. We should remember those things. We should make note of them because remembering that God is with us, this really does calm our anxiety. The other thing that 
The other reason that being thankful calms our anxiety, this reason that I said I couldn't totally wrap my head around, and I say that partly because the passage says that we can't understand this. We see it in verse 7. Paul writes, The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think this is the coolest part of this passage. No matter what your crisis is, the peace that God provides to you can trump it. If it's a contest between your anxiety on the one hand and God's ability to protect, your anxiety is not going to win that battle. It's like pitting a gerbil against a tiger. God's just bigger. He can comfort us in any affliction. He chooses to do so through us giving thanks to him and us casting our anxieties upon him in prayer. It doesn't make any sense that you were losing a job and you needed that income that you would feel any measure of peace. It doesn't make sense that if you're experiencing strain in a significant relationship that you would feel any measure of peace. And yet, God can speak peace to your heart. Nothing can separate you from his love. And sensing his love casts out all fear. There are enough things in our life that could go wrong. It's not hard for Satan to leverage these things in a way that can slow us down or even cripple us with fear. Oftentimes these fears aren't even realistic and yet they still, still make us anxious. Ephesians 6 talks about sort of the, the battle that we're in with the cosmic forces of evil, with Satan and his demons, and putting on the armor of God as we go into that battle that we're in just by virtue of following Jesus. In verse 16 it says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I have to think that most of these flaming darts tend to come in the form of worry and anxiety, fear. Oftentimes, it starts with something small, a misinterpreted conversation, a false picture of someone, an imagined conflict. You don't think of a dart as carrying that big of a wound in itself, but a flaming dart, the flame of anxiety can grow. But if we go to God with our anxieties, if we receive his protection, these flaming darts, these anxieties and fears will fizzle out. Because of the protection that we have that Christ made possible for us, we can go to God to receive that protection. You might be asking, what does does it actually look like? I'll offer my experience on sort of a take-it-or-leave-it basis. It's different from person to person, different from time to time even with me. I would regard myself as being an anxious person. I get anxious about things at school, little things and and big things. I get anxious about what future ministry would look like, preaching a sermon. My ethos group can tell you how much of anxious anxiety I felt with this. So it's kind of humbling to be wrestling with the thing that you're preaching about. Sometimes I just realize that I'm anxious and I say a simple prayer and that's enough. I'm able to dismiss it and move on. Other times I pray about it, even journal about it. I pray some more. I ask other people to pray for me, and I still can't completely shake it. I'm still sort of weighed down by it a little bit. Does that mean that God's protection is not there in those moments? No. Sometimes the supernatural protection of God is just enough to help us take another step forward, to continue operating in the midst of the tension. That's a lot better than us throwing in the towel, giving up or disengaging. It's also a lot better than us not giving up, but turning to something else, deal with our anxiety, something like a substance or pornography or taking your frustration out on other people. There's only one good way to deal with our anxiety, 
And that is by casting it upon God in prayer and doing so with thanks. This is the dynamic that Paul prescribes for us in this passage. Elsewhere in Romans 1, he actually talks about how the opposite dynamic is in play too. This is a passage that sort of summarizes the the general downfall of all mankind. Just read it. This is talking about people in general. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So in other words, people don't respond to God. They don't give thanks to him. He pulls back his protection, gives them over to spiritual blindness, to to their sin. They worship the wrong things. We might not be bowing down to statues, but I tend to think that the things that make us anxious are good indicators of what we are bowing down to. Acknowledging God, recognizing his goodness, and giving thanks to him This is at the core of what we're created to do. We have a choice. We can cultivate feelings that are proper and appropriate. We can depend on God in prayer and receive his protection. Or we cannot do that and in doing so, turn to something else and let whatever coping mechanisms you turn to torch your heart and choke off your joy. We have a choice and we should exercise that choice. This begins with what we let in our mind. Paul's last piece of instruction as we look at these everyday instructions for joy is to fill your mind with what is good. God didn't make you a robot. He's not going to choose all the thoughts that go into your head. We get to be the gatekeepers. We get to decide what stays and what goes. In verse 8, Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about such things. Why does it matter so much what we think about? For one, what we think about tends to be what our feelings and what our actions gravitate towards. So that's one reason. Another reason is that when we proactively fill our minds with what is good, when we take hold of things that we know are, are good to dwell on, there's less room in our heads to think about things that don't belong there. Things like anger or bitterness or jealousy or, or lust. The best way to get these things out of our head isn't just to tell yourself, don't think about that, don't think about that, don't think about that. That's a fundamentally flawed way of going about it. Sort of a classic example. If I tell you, don't think about white elephants, well, you're going to think about white elephants, right? But if instead I tell you a story about a boy who grew up in an Arabic country. He was so poor that he, this pet monkey needed to steal bread for him to survive. And then he met this princess named Jasmine that he really had the hots for. He found a, a genie and a magic carpet, and he was able to make his play. Now that I'm telling you about Aladdin, you're probably not thinking about white elephants. Or to use another analogy, the best way to get a bad song out of your head is to sing a better song. The best way to get thoughts out of our head that don't belong there is to let your mind be captivated with better thoughts. Not too long ago, I was going to bed. It was after a long day. And I should have fallen asleep right away. I was tired. 
But within a couple minutes of laying down, this discouraging thought entered my head. And I'm not going to tell you what it was just because it would take some explanation and it's kind of besides the point. But I realized pretty quickly, I'm not supposed to think about this. I've thought about this a lot. It's not helpful. It's just going to keep me awake. Get rid of it. Well, a few moments later, I'm still wrestling through it. Wasn't able to just dismiss it. So I thought, okay, time to break out the big guns. I have scripture in my head. I'm just going to go through Romans 8 and drift off into the land of the unconscious. That didn't work either. I couldn't get through more than a couple verses. Couldn't concentrate. And it wasn't until I remembered that there was an article on my phone. It was an interview with Tim Keller about a new book on prayer that he'd come out with. I'd started reading it and knew that it was good. So when I remembered that, I rolled over, picked up my phone, and within five minutes of just kind of sitting there and scrolling through, I could just feel the tension lift, and off to bed I went. There was something better that I filled my mind with. There was something more captivating, crowded out the stuff that was not supposed to be there. Well, thinking back to George Mueller, this guy who told us that the most important thing to do day by day was to make our souls happy in God, I want to share another piece of advice that, that he gave. I mentioned his book, Answers to Prayer. About a year and a half ago, I was listening to it was a podcast summary of it, which I recommend. It was narrated by a guy with a very pleasing English accent. Um, <laughs> he shared this piece of advice that just has hung with me since. He talked about how when he was wrestling in prayer about decisions that needed to be made, oftentimes he got the most clear answers to prayer once he got to the point that he was okay with whatever the outcome was. In other words, he didn't have anxiety about it. He trusted God's goodness. I think that speaks volumes to the importance of battling anxiety and giving thanks to God. Because of what Christ did, we've been freed up to be what we're supposed to be, to recognize God's goodness, to rejoice in him. And so let's let the thoughts and feelings inside of us, the words and the deeds that come out of us, let's let these be the proper and appropriate response that we owe him. Let's not go through this life thinking that we can walk through the constant crossfire of flaming darts and arrows and not have to constantly be putting out a few of these fires. If you don't learn to, to deal with your anxiety, to cast them upon God in prayer, to do so with giving thanks to him, they're going to spread. You're going to turn to something else. But even if the, the fire of your anxiety has gotten big and you feel like all you have is a squirt gun, there's other people. Tell them. Tell them you need a fire truck of prayer. Ask them to pour them out for you. And know that God is near to you with his spirit, his spirit who cares more about the things that make you anxious than even you do, who knows your heart better than you do, who lifts up your prayers to God, even the ones that you don't know you should be praying. Know that he's near to you. Be encouraged by that. Rejoice in the Lord always. We'll say it again. Rejoice. You pray for us. Lord God, I thank you for your word, for the truth that you provide protection, protection that surpasses all our understanding. Give us the resolve to rejoice in you, even when times are hard. I pray especially for people who are going through tough times right now that, that you would renew that resolve in them. <clears throat> and I pray that as we, we turn to you and we, we make this effort to rejoice in whatever form it might be, 
I pray that you would bless that richly. I pray this all in your name. Amen.